This is Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, and you're listening to WMNF Tampa. WMNF 88.5 FM and WMNF.org. This is the Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canaan. Today we're going to honor WMNF's mission calendar for the month of May by focusing a segment on mental health awareness. We'll hear about how new data shows that the U.S. experienced the highest ever combined rates of death due to alcohol, drugs, and suicide during the COVID-19 pandemic's first year, and that there was a disproportionate harm to young people and to people of color. We'll also speak with an entrepreneur and community leader about the state of Black Tampa. But we're going to kick off the show today talking about the Citizens Review Board for Police in Tampa and possible changes that might be on the ballot in November. The city was supposed to hold a workshop on that topic yesterday, but the facilitator was sick and it will be rescheduled. City Council will decide on Thursday about a new date for that workshop. There's a time crunch, though, in order to get that ballot question approved in time for November's election. So council still took public comment yesterday, and we're going to hear part of that public comment now. Here, we're going to kick off with the part of that public comment, beginning with the representative from the police union, the PBA, and you're listening to WMNF Tampa's Tuesday Cafe. Hope you stay tuned for this short public comment segment, and we'll also hear about those other two topics I talked about earlier on WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. Hello, Council. Brandon Barclay, Tampa PBA Vice President. Um, I'm here today about the CRB. Um, Our concerns are with an independent council that we're reopening the door to go back on two years of negotiations that we believe that we sat down in good faith. Um, That's all of our concern today. Thank you. Uh, Good morning, Councilman, Councilwoman. That's pretty cool. Um, so Please yeah, state your name. Uh, my name is Jatulio Gonzalez Militieri. Uh, last Monday, on the 18th, President Biden and Secretary Fudge, so on, they provided the city of Tampa with $10,088,897 specifically to address the housing crisis. That, so how are you going to pay for it? It's right there. Um, I'm uh, suggesting that council establish an office of tenant advocate. Uh, that will represent indigent tenants and the wrongfully evicted by providing them with legal counsel in civil litigation and that will oversee a registry of landlords in the city and that will ensure that the tenants bill of rights that was passed not too long ago was upheld. Uh, Miami-Dade did this so it's possible. I don't think it'll be preempted by uh, Tallahassee and those jokers up there. Um, Also the 60-day notice on res- uh, raising the rent rates it actually clashes with Florida Statute 83-575. Um, and, and a scrupulous landlord can, that's motivated by you know bad things could uh, put in a uh, provision where tenants are obligated to give 60 days notice on whether or not they'll renew the lease. And on that same day, they could also give the notice that they'll be re- uh, raising the rent rate above 5%. So you only have one day to decide whether or not you're going to renew the contract uh, given the, the rent relate that that's that's just not right so I suggest that that council extend that 60-day notice uh, from the landlord to the tenant to 120 days um, also for this office of tenant advocate I would highly suggest that it's appointed by City Council and not the mayor's office thank you thank you Good morning mr. chairman members of council Good morning. Yes. 
many of you know, I'm Ron Cristaldi. I'm an attorney with the Shoemaker Firm. reside at the 3321 West Carrington Street. I appreciate you all giving us the opportunity to be here today. It's great to see you all. And thank you, Councilman Carlson, for creating this forum. Um, as one of only, I think I'm only one of three um, former Charter Review Commissioners who are now not either on the dais, four of you served with me or council to hear. Uh, I felt compelled this morning to come and just uh, observe and maybe say a few words. Uh, three points that I wanted to um, ask the commission to keep into consideration as they go through the workshop. I understand it'll be at a different date here. Uh, first, the, the charter is the constitution of the city of Tampa. Constitutions are intended to set policy, develop process, and um, codify set in stone fundamental principles that we run the city on. They're not intended to be vehicles for legislation. We've seen this happen at the state level where things get into our state constitution that are better suited for the state legislature. So the first thing I would ask you all to keep in mind is to preserve the sanctity of our, of our charter in the city in the same way we preserve the sanctity of a constitution and not use it as a vehicle for legislation. You all have very broad powers to pass ordinances, I'm not here today to speak on any specific uh, issue, and I would uh, commend you all to use those powers from an ordinance perspective, if, if so be it. Um, <clears throat> second, I would ask that you, you all are, for us citizens, the seven of you, are our buffer between politics and good policy. There are a lot of special interests who will come to you, who will maybe speak this morning and ask you to put into our, our charter things that uh, advantage one group over another or are driven by political uh, agendas. You are the folks who we look to to um, keep that from happening. So I would ask you all to serve in that function and be protectors of our charter. And third, and I think this is important, and I don't mean this disrespectfully, but I, I believe that the philosophy of creating the Charter Review Commission at the time was that it was a citizen's review. It was all individuals who are not employed by or elected officials of the city of Tampa. All of us who were here at the time were not uh, employees of the city. Sorry, Mr. Chairman, do I have a few more seconds here? Thank you. Um, and so I think it is important that we preserve the sanctity of that, that what was passed before uh, with, with in my recollection, almost a year-long process, many, many hours of discussion, was a group of citizens who got together. So in closing, I would say, uh, when you consider different amendments, ask yourselves these questions. Is it appropriate to put this particular provision in our Constitution, in our Charter, or is it better legislated through action of City Council or policy of the City? Second, does it have to happen now? We created a process for review by citizens every 10 years. I believe that that process is sound and was well debated. So ask yourself on that particular issue, does it need to happen now? And third, um, ask yourself, is it politically motivated? If it is, please be the buffer of the citizens and not included in our, our charter. In closing, I just wanna thank you all. I know that these tasks are, um, Having done it a little bit myself, a very little bit, I know what y'all do every day is thankless, and you all put a lot of hard work in it, each and every one of you. So thank you for your service, and thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the time. Thank you. Good morning, buenos dias. Buenos dias. My name is David Sinclair, 8434 Pebble Circle, Tampa, Florida. I'm here to speak to you today about the need to establish an office of 
tenant advocacy here within the city of Tampa. Um, such an office would represent indigent tenants and the wrongfully evicted by providing them with legal counsel in civil litigation that would oversee the registry of landlords in the city and that would ensure the tenant's bill of right is upheld. This is significant within our city. There are persons who need your support and I believe that this is something that is very morally significant and we call upon you to uphold this opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good morning, uh, Good morning. James Michael Shaw, Jr. Um, there are nine, I'm using numbers from June 2020, there were 934 police officers in Tampa. Only 158 of them lived in the city, so that's 17%. The other 83% live outside of the city. Now, what do the people outside the city do for the people inside the city? Well, they, they enacted a policy uh, where they asked landlords to evict 1,100 families, uh, roughly 1,000 of whom were black families, based on one family member's alleged crime, sometimes a petty crime, like stealing change out of a cup holder. A teenager does that and the whole family gets evicted. Uh, there were victims of domestic violence that ended up losing their homes because the person that they lived with committed a crime against them. Uh, that was a regime that was enacted by people who do not live in the city of Tampa on the people who live in the city of Tampa. Now, how were they able to do that? Because nobody was watching. We didn't have an oversight panel who, staffed of Tampa citizens overseeing what the people outside the city thought was best for us, but not for themselves. So that's why we need meaningful oversight so that the people who live inside the city can know what these people who live outside the city are doing to us and, and pay attention to it. Now, uh, to give a little bit of a history, and I'm glad this gentleman talked about press negotiations. Um, I've got on the Elmo here. This is an email from uh, Councilman Vieira to a constituent where he states that, uh, I don't know how to switch to the Elmo. Can we have the Elmo on please, I think. <clears throat> this is an email from Councilman Vieira where he tells a constituent, I, I strongly support having a majority of the picks on, this, on, on the board instead of from the mayor. He also supports an independent council, but when it comes to subpoena power, the, uh, the city attorney is telling us that we can't do that. I've got an email from um, Councilman Carlson uh, where he tells a constituent, the city attorney says that subpoena power would have to go to the voters in a charter change. Uh, and when we review the, charge, the charter changes in a few months, I will probably propose one. Um, another email from Councilman Carlson mentions that independent power and subpoena power have to be added by a charter amendment. So this is not the going back on previous negotiations. This is the fulfillment of them. And um, that's all I have to say for now. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to WMNF Tampa. Those were just a few of the voices from yesterday's workshop at Tampa City Council to propose possible changes to the Citizens Review Board for Police in Tampa. That workshop was postponed. It'll be rescheduled very soon. And if you have anything that you'd like to say about this, there will be a time later in the show that we're going to do that. So, uh, as I said, a new date will be chosen for that workshop. This Thursday, they'll, they'll decide that. We'll hear more about this later in the show and give you a chance to weigh in with your calls. We turn now to a new report that says that that shows that the U.S. experienced the highest ever combined rates of deaths due to alcohol, drugs, and suicide during the COVID-19 pandemic's first year, and that there was disproportionate harm to young people and to people of color. Joining us now by Zoom is Brandon Revis, and he is the senior 
Government Relations Manager at Trust for America's Health. Thanks so much for joining us, Brandon. Thanks for having me, Sean. I really appreciate you coming on today to talk about this very important topic. So let's just begin with, I guess, the main point of this report that you're part of. How many Americans died in 2020 with deaths that were associated with alcohol, drugs, and suicide? We saw around 185,000 Americans die from deaths associated with alcohol, drugs, and suicide, which is a 20% increase uh, from 2019 and the highest increase ever recorded. So the the name of this um, report that you put out is called Pain in the Nation, Alcohol, Drug, and Suicide Deaths. It's by Trust for America's Health, your organization, Brandon, and Wellbeing Trust. So what... Uh, what do we know about the trend then in alcohol, drug, and suicide deaths? How is how has that been uh, going over the last few years? The combined numbers of the deaths you mentioned were at crisis levels before the COVID nineteen pandemic. We know that uh, the pandemic experience has made them even worse, uh, but we've seen really troubling trends over the last twenty years, especially in the area of drug overdoses. In 2018, your report said that there were 55,000. You compare that with 2020, which is 187,000. What what do you think caused, what's the uh, cause then of that much of an increase? During the pandemic, we've seen an increase in some of the stressors that even before COVID led to these types of deaths, including housing insecurity, food instability, uh, grief and loss, job loss, economic disruption. And I think those have only been intensified by the experiences that we've all had over the past two years, which has also involved additional stress, interruptions in schools, behavioral health services, and other recovery programs. I want to remind people that our guest is Brandon Rivas, Senior Government Relations Manager at Trust for America's Health. That's also TFAH. They're part of a collaboration that just released a report called Pain in the Nation, Alcohol, Drug, and Suicide Deaths. The report had state-by-state data on overall alcohol, drug, and suicide deaths. We're going to link to that report. It's on our website, WMNF.org. So uh, how does Florida compare with other states? In terms of uh, the individual categories of deaths from alcohol, drugs, and suicide, Florida is in line with the United States average. Uh, combined deaths uh, in Florida were up 21% compared to 20% across the country. But I would note that within the category of opioids, if we break that down, Florida did see higher rates of death from synthetics like fentanyl and other psychostimulants like crystal meth. So that suggests that uh, Florida might have a particular problem with non-opioids being laced with opioids that can cause overdoses. What are some of the policies or practices or programs that can be put in place to address these combined epidemics of substance misuse and suicide? Well, first and and perhaps most importantly, we need to invest in programs uh, that prevent these types of issues from forming in the first place and also promote the social and economic conditions that lead to positive health outcomes. And then to address the current crisis, we need to make sure that uh, local leaders and others have naloxone and other harm reduction tools at their disposal to prevent deaths. We need to expand and continue some of the telehealth access that has helped many people connect with care during the course of the pandemic. And then more broadly, we also need to transform our mental health and substance abuse system in general to try to combat some of the stigma that prevents people from accessing care and then to encourage providers to uh, treat mental health care alongside physical health care. Your report found that there was a difference in in uh, the rate overall compared with 
communities of color where drug and alcohol death rates are increasing. What, what can you tell us about the data there? What's, um, what are the numbers for communities of color and why might there be a, a discrepancy? As you mentioned, Sean, we did find the deaths due to drug use among the black community increased by 40% between 2019 and 2020. We also saw that alcohol-induced deaths were high, uh, highest among American Indians and Alaska Native populations, uh, and suicide deaths increased uh, among that population as well as other communities of color. So we know that in general, uh, issues like community violence, housing insecurity, lack of food, lack of economic opportunities uh, have led to deaths of despair. And I think those issues, especially during the pandemic, have been even more prominent for communities of color. And what about young people? Well, we know that suicides are up for young adults uh, and youth. Uh, and I think that underlines the importance of establishing programs in schools that address mental health care and have screening programs and that teach children the social and economic uh, and social and emotional rather uh, skills they need to cope with the stressors of life and to avoid turning to drugs. I want to remind people that we're speaking with Brandon Revis. He's Senior Government, Government Relations Manager for Trust for America's Health. They just released a report called Pain in the Nation, Alcohol, Drug, and Suicide Deaths. The report has state-by-state -state data on overall alcohol, drug, and suicide deaths. That report is on our website, wmnf.org. And you're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. It's 1023 in the morning. I'm Sean Canaan, the host of Tuesday Cafe. Well, so Brandon, do you have tips on how to talk with your loved ones if, they're, if you're concerned that they may have a substance misuse disorder or a mental health issue? What are some tips that you can give people? Well, I would flag for your listeners, Sean, that starting in July, the federal government will launch a crisis line called 988. Uh, and that's a service that you can dial just like 911 uh, and the operator on the other end of the line will connect you with services in your local area or statewide. And that's a good clearinghouse for the resources that are available to people who are dealing with their own mental health crises or trying to help their loved ones. And in the meantime, I'd recommend that uh, your listeners go to mentalhealth.gov, which is a great compendium of resources that are available, as well as uh, with talking points that can help them have some of the difficult conversations that I think we're, we've all been facing on some level. Are there any signs, I think the last year that you completely analyzed was 2020. Are there any signs, uh, do we have any hint of what you might expect for the 2021 or, or 2022 years when it comes to the trends in these issues? Unfortunately, the provisional data that we've seen in terms of drug overdoses is not encouraging. The CDC released data within the last few weeks that showed that uh, around 108,000 Americans died from drug overdoses in 2021, uh, which is uh, more than a 10,000 uh, individual increase from the numbers that we saw from 2020. And I think that suggests that the uh, mental health impact of the pandemic, the grief and the loss that we've all suffered will have very far-reaching effects. Our guest is Brandon Rivas, Senior Government Relations Manager at Trust for America's Health. Their new report is called Pain in the Nation, Alcohol, Drug, and Suicide Deaths. We have a person who writes in and Greg wants to know, is there anything in the report about the fact that younger and younger children can conceptualize suicide and the access to firearms due to the volume of guns in, on U.S. streets? They're increasingly able to complete the task. So that's a question that comes from Greg who uses the hashtag, what did he write? Suicide, hashtag suicide epidemic. So those are, I guess, two maybe separate and, and related uh, questions about younger and younger children conceptualizing suicide and the access to firearms, if you'd like to tackle either of those. 
Absolutely. I think those are, are two great points and, and they highlight uh, two factors that I think have contributed to youth suicide. One involves uh, the access that children have through social media to others who might be describing their suicidal ideas, their suicidal attempts, and that can place uh, those thoughts or at least open the conversation uh, in terms of uh, children taking that step. We also talk about the importance in the report of limiting access to lethal means of suicide, not necessarily through gun control, but making sure that uh, through the judicial system, we can limit uh, access of firearms to those who are in crisis and to make sure generally that our communities are safe. What are some of the steps? I think that the, in Florida that we have uh, ways, there's after the Parkland shooting, the state legislature enacted ways to take, I guess, take people's guns away if they were considered a, um, a threat to themselves or to others. But are there other ways that that can happen? There are uh, mechanisms called extreme risk protection orders uh, that can be applied in an emergency basis of individuals in crisis. But I think there's also a need for more foundational research into the connection between uh, gun violence and mental health in our communities, as well as the adoption of counseling programs that can address the trauma and the grief that come from mass shootings specifically. I want to remind people that we're speaking with Brandon Rivas, Senior Government Relations Manager at Trust for America's Health. Their new report is called Pain in the Nation, Alcohol, Drug, and Suicide Deaths, just released, and they're part of a collaboration. And the report also has state-by-state data on overall alcohol, drug, and suicide deaths. Brandon, you can find that link on our website, wmnf.org, but if people want to search for your organization or for the the, uh, report on your websites, what are some websites that they can go to? They can go to our website at Trust for America's Health, and that's tfah.org. And Brandon, we've talked a little bit about some policy solutions, but what else that can be done from a policy perspective that might prevent the further death and despair? As we talked about, I think there's an important uh, element here that maybe gets overlooked, and that's the uh, broader perspective of investing in the social and economic conditions that lead to positive health outcomes by addressing trauma, by making sure that uh, children uh, experience fewer adverse childhood experiences that lead to negative health outcomes uh, further down uh, in their life. It's also important to uh, address the current crisis by promoting harm reduction policies, like making sure that first responders have the naloxone they need to reverse overdoses. And then we need to transform the mental health system more broadly by combating stigma, by making sure that providers are treating uh, physical health along with mental health, and that we're aligning our delivery and our payment and our quality measures to help encourage providers to do so. Well, Brandon, those are my questions. Is there anything else, the last word you'd like to leave with our listeners about your report called Pain in the Nation, Alcohol, Drug, and Suicide Deaths? I would just say that although the numbers that we talked about are daunting, we do know that there are evidence-based programs that work. So what we need now is sustained and immediate investment in those programs to get Americans the care they need. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Brandon. Thank you, Sean. Brandon Rivas is Senior Government Relations Manager at Trust for America's Health. That's TFAH. They're part of a collaboration that just released a report called Pain in the Nation, Alcohol, Drug, and Suicide Deaths. The report has state-by-state data on overall alcohol, drug, and suicide deaths. We're going to link to that report. It's on our website, wmnf.org. We'll be right back after this short music break. We'll talk about the state of Black Tampa Please stay with us on WMNF Tampa 88.5 FM. This is Tuesday Cafe. And if you'd like to weigh in, you can call 813-239-9663.
9663 or email dj at wmnf.org. Thanks so much. WMNF Tampa Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. You're listening to 88.5 FM and WMNF.org. And again, if you'd like to talk about anything you've heard today so far, you can give us a call at 813-239-9663. I will be opening the phone lines later on. You can also email us at dj at WMNF.org or or text us at 813-433-0885. We turn now to our next segment. We examine the state of Black Tampa, and there's a forum coming up with that title. It's on Friday, June 3rd in Ybor City, and joining us now by Zoom is its host, Gary Hartfield, an entrepreneur and community leader. Welcome to WMNS Tuesday Cafe, Gary. Hey, good morning. How are you doing this morning, Sean? I'm doing great. Nice to meet you, and uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. So what can you tell us uh, about what the state of Black Tampa is in 2022? Wow, so that has so many different uh, tangents that we could speak to, but most importantly, we wanted to have a conversation and create a safe space uh, for everyone to be uh, involved in intelligent dialogue around economics, around socio-political issues, and around health disparities. As we come out of this global pandemic, um, there are a number of issues that are highlighted in the community. And we wanted to make sure uh, in lieu of just circular reasoning um, and having one-off conversations, we wanted to make sure that we're more intentional going into 2022 and beyond about developing an agenda to address these issues, Sean. So tell us about the the event that you have coming up in early June in Ybor City. Please don't mention any prices, but just let people know where they can find more information or what they might be able to expect. Definitely. Thank you. So uh, please go to inventbrite.com and just look for the Refinery Exchange and you'll be able to get more information about the event uh, as well as secure tickets, sponsorships and or t- uh, premium seating is available through eventbrite.com. And just, again, search for the Refinery Exchange. And the event, again, is, is primarily about having a safe space here in the city of Tampa with so much happening. Um, we have more than $10 billion of development going on in our city, and we're poised to be one of the great cities that's on the cusp of technological advantages and kind of inspiration and development, uh, as well as the other things that we have in terms of growth and support for the community. We wanted to make sure that the Black community is engaged and is a part of the prosperity. 
I want to remind people that we're speaking with Gary Hartfield, who's an entrepreneur and community leader. He's part of this forum that's coming up on June 3rd in Ybor City called the State of Black Tampa. And that's what we're talking about this the rest of this hour. So you mentioned, Gary, a couple of times there, the refinery exchange. So please tell our listeners what is the fi- the refinery exchange. So thank you. That's um that's a very good question. The refinery exchange, uh, as we thought about how do we kind of define a, a label and terminology for what it is that we're trying to do. So the refinery uh, spoke to our mission the loudest in that when you go through the refinery process and if that's a precious metal, uh, you're able to extract those impurities from them from that precious metal through the refinery process. And from that becomes a more pure, a more solid uh, metal or precious metal. And for the refinery exchange, we thought that as we have these conversations, we're able to extract the noise, we're able to extract those things that uh, move us away from being a community uh, that is solidly together, uh, moving forward positively on one agenda. Uh, So as we refine the conversation, we refine the ideas, we refine uh, relationships, uh, and we move together as one Tampa uh, with all communities, the Black community, the Hispanic community, the white community, uh, the Asian community, the Muslim community, and so forth. We all move together in lockstep uh, as we know, uh, and we've heard a number of times uh, from the old cliche that a rising tide lifts all boats. Our guest is Gary Hartfield, an entrepreneur and community leader. He's part of a meeting that's coming up, the State of Black Tampa. And that's what we're talking about the rest of this hour on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. If you'd like to weigh in, please give us a call, 813-239-9663. You can email DJ at WMNF or text 813-433-0885. What do you think about the state of Black Tampa or the state of wherever you live? How is the, the community wherever you live? Let's hear about what you think. Gary, you mentioned health disparities. So, yes. uh, you know, earlier in this show, you may not have heard this conversation, but we were talking about how there are so many deaths from suicides and alcoholism during the pandemic for all of America, but especially in communities of color. That's one of the health disparities that you might be talking about. What are some of the others health disparities that you're, that you're uh, concerned about? We certainly want to speak to mental health. Um, and the disparities as it relates to the Black community. Uh, We also want to speak to uh, long COVID and COVID-related issues and how they have disproportionately affected the Black community. And an integral part of that is making sure that the community is aware of the various options uh, that's available through the Affordable Care Act to make sure that all communities are connected with uh, healthcare, and that they are really making sure that their mental and physical health uh, is being managed and maintained. Well, we have a phone call, so let's, uh, if you don't mind, let's go to the f- the phone lines, and we can speak with with Connie in Tampa. I can't get her on right this second, but uh, we'll we'll try to come back to her in just a minute. 
Uh, I should remind people that you're listening to WMNF Tampa, and we're hearing about the state of Black Tampa from Gary Hartfield, an entrepreneur and community leader. There's a forum coming up on Friday, June 3rd, about the state of Black Tampa, and uh, we will. Uh, he's going to talk more about that as we go on. But we do have Connie on the line. Welcome to the show, Connie. Yes. Uh, how are you doing? I don't know how to feel. I mean, I applaud all efforts for this engagement. Uh, but we're in a crisis, and I think uh, when I hear of, you know, organizations and efforts to rebrand or restart uh, these conversations, it sometimes confuses the community as if nothing is happening. Uh, like, right now, we're in the middle of major gentrification. Who can't see that? Uh, you would have to be almost deaf not to know, uh, say, the Hannah Project on uh, Hannah uh, and the way it came about that really pushes black contractors off the table from being able to be competitive. Uh, we have the mayor's multi-crime housing bill that targets black families. And then in the middle of all of this, uh, voter suppression uh, but we have the NAACP that has been a leading force in some of these discussions without, you know, some of the participants uh, not engaging where we're already at. So, um, like I said, you know, the, the more conversation, I guess, the better. But one of the criticisms that I would constantly make to this black community that we have been about talk and restart, talk and restart, and limited action. And to uh, force the inclusion of others when they are witnessing and can see what is happening fundamentally to black voices, black voting rights, uh, 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 criminalization, the lack of any reforms to deal with our disparity is not there. And so I would just encourage people to not exclude the work of some of the, our founding organizations and let's see how to build bridges as opposed, as opposed to starting new. Thank you so much. Connie, thanks for those thoughts. Let's turn to our guest. I want to remind people this is Gary Hartfield and he's uh, hosting a forum that's coming up on Friday, June 3rd, the state of Black Tampa. So, Gary, what would you say about some of the things that Connie brought up there? I, I think we want to make sure that we are building bridges. Um, an integral part of the program will be uh, the NAACP. Uh, they uh, have a representative, uh, Miss Yvette Lewis, that will be on the panel. Uh, speaking to civic and political engagement. And if I can interrupt um, you for a second, Gary, I apologize, but I just I feel that it's the time for me to point out that uh, Yvette Lewis is a member of the WMNF Board of Directors. So uh, I just wanted to point that out and can continue, please. Excellent, excellent. So uh, we certainly do not want to um, not recognize other work that's being done in the community. Uh, we are simply... Uh, an additional voice, um, and I think we bring an added value to the table uh, when we do include all communities in the conversation. Uh, we indeed cannot move forward uh, as a community uh, without including everyone. 
Um, what is tragic is, for example, what has just happened in Buffalo, New York, um, where 10 of our community members were murdered. When they got up that morning, um, they expected to go to the grocery store, which was um, in a food desert, uh, but they were expecting to go to the grocery store. They were able to get their groceries and they expected and their families expected for them to return home. They did not do anything wrong that day. The only thing uh, that was held against them at that time was the fact that they were black. And an individual drove hours uh, to uh, terrorize and kill 10 individuals and wound three others. So it's important to recognize that in order to, to heal, in order to stop this terrorism, in order to move uh, the American community forward, we have to do it together. We cannot do it in isolation. Our guest is Gary Hartfield, who has a forum coming up called The State of Black Tampa. It's Friday, June 3rd in Ybor City, and we'll link to more information on our website, WMNF.org. You're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canaan. It's 1043 in the morning. If you'd like to weigh in, you can call in at 813-239-9663. You can text 813-433-0885 or email dj at WMNF.org. Dot org. So, Gary, in, while you were talking about the, the horrible tragedy that happened in Buffalo, you brought up an issue that is a, a, a systemic problem in, mm-hmm. in communities of color, and that's food deserts. That's where, where people who are in economically impoverished parts of town just simply don't have access to healthy food. How would you say that the, how would you rate Tampa on that, and what, how could we be doing better? So in Tampa, um, in the city proper, uh, we still have some issues. And those issues we have to address from a historical context, Sean. Uh, There's a book um, called The Color of Law. And it speaks to the federal, state, and local um, um, initiatives to disenfranchise the Black community that were delivered by our federal, state, and local government. And in doing so, they created these uh, communities where Blacks uh, did not have uh, the resources that were necessary that were available in their community and created food deserts as well as other issues in the community. So we have to address that, uh, this issue from a historical context. In the city proper, within the city limits, uh, we still have those issues. And it's amazing uh, here in 2022 that we will still have uh, food deserts um, in the richest and uh, wealthiest and most technologically advanced nation in the history of recorded recorded history. Uh, We still have these issues, not only here in Tampa, but around our nation so it's a it's a serious concern uh and there are lingering issues here in the city of tampa our guest is gary hartfield an entrepreneur and community leader whose forum is called the state of black tampa it will be friday june 3rd in ybor city you're listening to wmnf's tuesday cafe 
Gary, just then you were you were talking about systemic racism and hi- the history of racist policies, not just racism where where an individual's heart is in, a, in it ha- has evil in it and hates uh, a different race. We're talking what you were talking about is a built-in system, systemic racism. And that whole concept has been under a microscope lately with the Florida legislature and the governor saying that that kind of analysis of systemic racism, historical racism, is simply not going to be allowed to be taught in schools in the state of Florida. How do you, how do you have schools? How do you teach history or, ha- or teach really any subject, sociology really any subject, by covering up or ignoring systemic racism and the history of racism in this country how do you do, how do you do that and how why would that I, I assume that you agree with me and with others that that would be a bad thing and how how would that be damaging i i do agree with you sean um and i am concerned that the governor um would not have uh enough input or um dialogue around him that would help him Uh, make a better choice in that regard. But to that end, uh, Sean, in the gubernatorial election, uh, when the present governor DeSantis was elected, there was a margin of maybe about 30,000 votes. So that was a very small margin. And um, at that time, uh, the Democratic uh, gubernatorial candidate Mr. Andrew Gillum um, held a very significant presence as it relates to uh, being a front runner um, to oppose the governor in the next election. So we find that when competition, viable competition is there, uh, we're forced to govern from the middle. When viable competition is not there, then you can govern from extremes. So I say that to say that the refinery exchange for individuals with like minds uh, that are sensitive, that are empathetic to these kinds of concerns, Sean, we are uh, collectively getting together in the safe space to talk about issues such as the one uh, that we just spoke about, like critical race theory. So in that conversation, we have to define what our agenda is And then how do we move forward collectively to exercise our vote? Um, Now, there have been other measures passed to minimize or disenfranchise that vote. But how do we collectively move forward here in the state of Florida, in the city of Tampa, in Hillsborough County, in the Bay Area, and and indeed in the state of Florida? How do we mobilize around a refined mindset? How do we start moving forward? on a singular agenda. Now, there will always be differing opinions, but we have to define an agenda of three to five items that we're gonna fight on one page for, and then we present those to our candidates and to our elected leaders, and we move forward on those agendas. We can't just keep having these circular conversations about these issues. If not, we're not gonna progress, we're gonna regress. 
Our guest is Gary Hartfield. The State of Black Tampa is a forum that he is helping to put together Friday, June 3rd in Ybor City. You're listening to WMNF WMNF Tampa on 88.5 FM and WMNF.org. I'm Sean Canan. Hey, so Alfredo in Lakeland has been holding a while. Let's go now to the phones and see what Alfredo has to say. Hi, Alfredo. Hi. I totally agree with everything that Mr. Hartfield was saying. Okay, I, t- I agreed something uh, some, somewhat. I didn't hear too too much of what the young the the older lady was saying, but uh, I heard some of it, and I agreed with that. Uh, I would like to invite Mr. Hartfield to come to Lakeland the first Monday of June to the Lakeland Commissioners um, meeting and to and and. Uh, to speak on the experiences in Lakeland in, uh, in Tampa concerning tenants' rights. Okay, that issue hasn't been brought up in Lakeland. That issue hasn't been brought up in Lakeland. So, uh, all right, well, I'm going to put you down since you have the phone ringing. But I think you got your point across there, Alfredo. So, um, Gary. What about tenants' rights? It is an issue that has been talked about a lot in St. Petersburg, a lot in Tampa. In fact, there's going to be a workshop at the city of Tampa this Thursday about tenants' rights. And Alfredo seems frustrated that they're not talking about that in Lakeland. What would you recommend to people in Lakeland and, uh, to talk about what's, why is that an important issue? So my approach to this is kind of two-pronged. I think first is very important that we analyze this from the landlord's perspective and try to define where the landlord is coming from. In our markets, uh, they are capitalistic in nature, meaning that when there's an opportunity, uh, we develop a solution that's a service or a product, and we capitalize on that and hopefully profit from it. So we're seeing that in this market. Now, in that same breath as landlords, as property owners, we have to do everything that we do in this capitalistic market with the same amount of civility and support for mankind. Right now, our tenants are suffering. Uh, It is unprecedented uh, what is um being kind of um dealt with in this in this in this in this economy where gas prices are at record highs where uh, grocery stores uh and groceries are at record highs and now we have um tenant rent and also mortgages we have tenant rent that are uh, extremely high So what was one time affordable and one of the attractive features about our state and our cities has now become the exact opposite because we are so expensive. So for the landlords, we have to, from a true American uh, heart standpoint, whatever we do, we have to do with civility. If prices are so high and tenants are not empowered, then indeed you do not have anyone to rent to. 
So the whole idea of being a landlord and being able to uh, meet the expenses of being a landlord are compromised if tenants are not supported. At the, at the same time, our tenants have to make sure that as we move through this very tumultuous time in our country's history, um, that we are doing so in exercising financial literacy, that we are exercising uh, our political and social initiatives. Um, if we have a voice at the county commission, if we have a voice at the city commission, if we have a voice at the state level and the federal level, then we're able to influence those outcomes. But if we have not established that voice, then it's going to be very difficult to establish outcomes. So I, I, I say that and I hope I addressed the question, but I, I think landlords have to do whatever it is that we do. I am a landlord. Whatever it is that we do in terms of supporting our tenants, we have to do that with a heart of civility. And our tenants, we have to make sure that we are moving forward in this tumultuous time in our country's history with one, financial literacy, but two, uh, galvanizing around this idea that the, the way we enforce change, the way that we request change is by a collective voice. Our guest is Gary Hartfield, an entrepreneur and community leader, talking about the state of Black Tampa, which is a forum he's hosting on Friday, June 3rd in Ybor City. And Gary, let me push back a little bit about what you were talking about, the, the tenants. Um, I, I don't think that anyone would disagree that in an ideal world, the, that a, a, t a landlord having a, a good heart and thinking about their, their tenants first and foremost and their well-being there, it, that would be a great situation. But the situation that we're in is that a lot of landlords see the landscape and the gentrification that uh, Connie was talking about earlier and they see that there's a high demand for housing and that there's people who are living on the streets because there's just not enough housing perhaps or for whatever reason and the, there are landlords out there who raise the rents tremendously because they can. And uh, I, I would guess that Alfredo and, and the people that I've heard in St. Pete and Tampa are talking about, well, what do you do then when, you, when you've created a, this housing crisis, this unaffordable housing crisis, simply because uh, just relying on people's hearts isn't uh, always going to work? No, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, and that's, a, that's one of the remnants of, of capitalism um, in that... Um, in an economy that's truly capitalistic in nature, um, sometimes individuals will uh, move toward profit as opposed to uh, civility. So I think in, in, in that regard, we have to hold officials accountable um, and understand that if there's anything that can be done to minimize the impact on tenants and their ability to afford rent. Um, I think that absolutely has to be done. I, now, how we do that, Sean, I'm not exactly sure. So I, I don't want to get out a book beyond my skis, but I do support the idea that um, if there's any way to support tenants and keep rent prices within reason for tenants to, to make rent affordable, uh, then I think that's certainly the way to go. Uh, but I think more importantly is 
the tenants uh, in our community have to move forward with a with a uh, singular agenda uh, and vote our interests. Our guest is Gary Hartfield, an entrepreneur and community leader, talking about the state of Black Tampa, which is the title of a forum that's coming up on Friday, June 3rd. We're, we're getting close to the end of the show, but I did want to ask you, Gary, about the state of Black Tampa when it comes to these, this, these historically black cemeteries that we've been finding, uh, that the community has, has found a lot of the Tampa Bay Times research and a lot of archaeologists have found these black cemeteries that seemingly were forgotten and built over. How does that relate to the state of Black Tampa? So it is a tragedy um, that that would happen and that speaks to a historical perspective on how sometimes um, individuals have uh, discounted the value of Black lives. So to that end, I think uh, we have to restore those sacred grounds where individuals and loved ones have been buried. And we have to make that right. Um, there's nowhere in our country where you can go and uh, develop or, or build on, on graves. Um, and it is a tragedy that this is being uncovered. And I think we have to speak to that um, on a local level as well as a state level and respond to that and restore those those landmarks and those graves uh, and make sure that those individuals rest in peace. Gary, if people want to find out more about the state of Black Tampa, the forum that you're hosting on Friday, June 3rd, remind them again where they can get that information. Eventbrite.com uh, and search for the Refinery Exchange. Again, that's eventbrite.com, the Refinery Exchange. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Gary. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Sean. It is truly my pleasure. Yeah, I'm really glad you were able to come on. Thank you so much. Uh, Gary Hartfield is part of a program next week called The State of Black Tampa, Friday, June 3rd in Ybor City. I want to thank John Dunn for answering phones today. I want to thank our earlier guests uh, for uh, the, their their. Um, information that they gave us and you can find out more about that on wmnf.org you have been listening to tuesday cafe i'm sean canan this show is every tuesday morning at 10 if you like the programming on 88.5 fm please consider making a donation at wmnf.org in this time slot tomorrow shelly will host midpoint and she'll talk about children's mental health Next up, we have Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger, and their guest is Tom Gribben, who will talk about books, music, comedy, and hot runners. That's coming up after NPR Headlines. You're listening to WMNF Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, and Lakeland. Thanks so much for listening and supporting community radio on WMNF. <laughs>